Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And you can also check out my blog at cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. All right. Today is Tuesday, November 16th, 2021, and we're going to continue our discussion of this draft constitution that the NCAA Constitution Committee has put together. They released it on November 8th of 2021, and we're going provision by provision, largely describing what's in this new document. And then on the backside, I'm going to do some analysis. But something interesting happened yesterday, November 15th of 2021. The Constitution Committee held a virtual convention. Convention. It was a five-hour convention, and there were delegates from all three of the NCAA divisions, a total of 2,500 delegates. This was an opportunity for the committee to receive some feedback. Honestly, I'm not sure how that worked procedurally and how they gathered the input, but it seems unlikely that with 2,500 people participating in a five-hour convention, that there was a lot of individualized communication. But one of the things they did was they did a straw vote on what the divisions thought about this draft constitution. And the numbers were very encouraging for the Constitution Committee. Among Division I delegates, approximately 85% said, yeah, we pretty much agree with what's in this draft. We have some minor tweaks and some things we'd like to talk about. But by and large, it's a thumbs up. The same was true with Division Two, and they came in at 85, 86% as well. A similar response. Yeah, there are a couple things we want to talk about, but really we're okay with this. And then Division Three came in at 74%. And they said, yeah, we're okay with this. We can go with it. There were a couple of things that came up that I want to talk just briefly about before I get into finishing up an analysis of the constitutional draft. But we have some confidence that what I'm talking about now is probably going to become reality because we have the next milestone coming up on December 15th, which I think is basically the final thumbs up. And then I believe that the Constitution, this new Constitution, will be put to a vote formally at the January 2022 meeting for ratification. And again, it appears that all systems are go and that we're going to have something that looks very much like this draft that I'm talking about in place by January of 2022. And a couple of things uh, came out of that that really tie back into some of the themes that I identified that really weren't on the table explicitly in this discussion about the draft document and its actual language. And one came from Division Three, and there was some pushback on the notion that there would be mandates on health and safety requirements at the institutional level. And that has been a problem for a lot of smaller schools and for all of divisions two and three, because they aren't making money. Their products don't make any money. None of those schools at the end of the year have net revenue. And I've talked about this at length in discussing how the Power Five have this conceit that exists only in the Power Five that their athletics departments can be fully self-sustaining because of the enormous revenue they generate from football and men's basketball. That only exists in the Power Five. And when you go down into lower level Division One, and then all of Division Two and Division Three, all of those schools have to look at their athletics budgets and figure out how they're going to pay for those expenses from general operating revenues. And they are line itemed as general university expenses. So those schools rightfully are concerned about any mandates that come out of this constitutional rewrite that would require them to comply with health and safety requirements that they simply don't think they can afford. And that was a theme that ran through some of the congressional testimony in the June 2021 hearing in Senate Commerce and then the September 30th, 2021 hearing in the House Consumer Protection and Commerce Subcommittee. I think that explains why you don't see any teeth in this language in the draft constitution that talks about athlete well-being and mental health and physical safety. That is just empty rhetoric. The way that the those 
values are expressed in this new constitution, they have no more legal effect or consequence than any of these fluffy principles in the old Article 2, the principles for the conduct of intercollegiate athletics, that the NCAA propagandizes but doesn't stand behind because there's no enforceable legislation and there is none in this new constitution and no directive for enforceable legislation at any point downstream from the association to the divisions to the conferences to the individual schools. Then the other thing that popped up was a comment from Greg Sankey, and he is the commissioner of the Southeastern Conference, the SEC. He is also the co-chair of this Division One Board of Directors Transformation Committee, which I think is going to be so important in terms of how these constitutional provisions are implemented at the Division One level. And again, we're only talking about Division One here. Divisions Two and Three have been bought off with the guaranteed budget allocations that I'm going to talk about here uh, a little more in this episode, because those are explicitly and separately addressed in this new constitution, whereas in the old constitution, they were pretty much hidden in the old Article 4 under organization. But they're taken care of. They're happy. And the support that this new constitution has reflects that, I believe. What Sankey uh, was quoted as saying is that he thinks that even though the Board of Governors has been pared down from 21 to 9. He's concerned that some of the authorities that the Board of Governors has, and I think he was probably talking about also the powers that the NCAA president has under this new constitution. Give them too much leeway in decision-making with respect to association-wide litigation and then policy matters. And, and that, I think, refers to the congressional campaign. And there's been some tension between the NCAA and the Power Five that goes back into the fall of 2019 when the Power Five were wondering if the NCAA was really the best messenger for their campaign in the Senate to achieve the Iron Throne of College Sports regulation and achieve preemption, uh, antitrust immunity, and a federal declaration that athletes can't be employees of their university. And you have to remember that in the heat of this Senate campaign, when they were really putting the full court press on both NCAA and the Power Five more behind the scenes, the Power Five sent their own letter. On May 23rd, 2022, leaders in both the Senate and the House setting forth their thoughts on what federal legislation ought to look like. This was ostensibly name, image, and likeness legislation, but as I've discussed, that was nothing more than a Trojan horse for these federal protections and immunities that would essentially have eliminated the athletes' rights movement. And as I also have mentioned, if the NCAA and Power Five had gotten any portion of the things they were asking for in the Senate, we're not having this discussion now. There's not going to be a constitution committee. There's not going to be a rewrite of the constitution. We're only here because the NCAA Power Five lost their bids in Congress and federal court to basically federalize the NCAA's compensation limits and federalize the name, image, and likeness market. They lost. So now we're here <laughs> doing what should have been done decades ago. But in that tension between the Power Five and the NCAA, you can read between the lines and get a sense that the Power Five wasn't happy with Mark Emmert. They said that explicitly in their December 2019 secret meeting. It was a Power Five-only meeting. There were 15 people, university presidents, conference commissioners, and then some other people, all men, mostly white men, sitting at the table. This, this is the smoke-filled room that you hear about. It was all about Power Five. It was all about money. And it was all about trying to position themselves in Congress to make this extraordinary and historic regulatory power grab. And they said, look, we don't think Emmert is the messenger. We're not sure that we are reading from the same page here in terms of urgency to get this done quickly. Emmert was pissing people off in Congress left and right. And I've talked about that as well. So the Power Five have been skeptical, I think, of the NCAA's handling of the legal strategy and the lobbying strategy. And remember, all of that runs through the NCAA president because the NCAA president has the exclusive authority to employ the outside contractors. And it isn't specifically addressed in the new constitution, but as I read the duties of the board of governors and the president, Emmert, in conjunction with the board of governors, would still have that authority. And I think that makes Greg Sankey very nervous. And I talked about this provision that requires the agenda for the Board of Governors to be published sufficiently in advance of the meeting so that there can be some commentary on that and some processing of what this agenda really looks like. And I just got the sense reading this constitutional draft, and it was confirmed through Sankey's comments yesterday, that 
some of the power players here don't have a lot of confidence that Emmert is really on top of things. And again, Emmert and Don Remy, he's left. He was the chief legal guy in-house, the chief in-house legal guy at the NCAA. And he and Emmert were really driving all these decisions and they were employing the lawyers and they were planning the litigation strategy. And it appeared as if the lawyers and the lobbyists were running the NCAA. And I've said that as well. I think that Sankey's comments support that, at least indirectly. So you have some concern that we're going to have the same dynamic when it comes to some of the most important decisions that the NCAA is going to have to make association-wide. And those relate to these really important external regulatory threats that have shaped this perfect storm and will shape the future of college sports, both in federal litigation and in Congress. That is a big, big issue here. And I think Sankey put that on the table. So it will be interesting to see in the next version of this draft constitution, whether the national office and Mark Emmert will have the same authorities they have had in the past with respect to litigation strategy and lobbying, or whether these divisional boards are going to be able to participate in those strategy calls and be really involved at the policymaking level. And then the other thing that came out of comments after the convention yesterday was that you had Bob Gates and Mark Emmert to a certain extent kind of tempering expectations and saying, well, yeah, this is important. We're making some changes here, but let's not get crazy with what this is going to look like on the backside. And I thought that was interesting. And I think that may reflect the fact that there will be some criticism once this all plays out. And I think it, it, it becomes more obvious that this is a, just a grand power play by the Power Five. And they win and the NCAA national office bureaucracy wins. And this is about power and money. That's it. This has nothing to do with athlete interest. And it was interesting. The Washington Post did an article. It was one of these summary articles, and it was not super detailed, but identified the two primary objectives of this Constitution Committee. One, delegating the NCAA's longstanding authority over college sports to the three divisions. Then number two, giving athletes a formal role in the decentralized decision-making process while elevating the importance of their health, safety, and well-being among NCAA schools and conferences in all divisions. And that is the smokescreen. Just like nil was a smokescreen for the NCAA and Power Five's historic regulatory power grab that failed. The student athlete well-being and student athlete voices and student athlete representation on new governing boards, that is the smokescreen in this constitutional makeover because we don't know what those boards are going to look like and whether the votes that these athletes have are going to be meaningful. I talked yesterday about this board of governors, the new board of governors that's been suggested, which would be reduced from 21 members to nine members. And the presidential influence on the new board is minimal. Perhaps only one university president, whereas the current board is loaded with university presidents by design because of this movement through the Knight Commission in the early 90s for presidential control and authority over intercollegiate athletics. But the single student-athlete representative, a voting seat, and that, that is important. It's the first time that a, the athletes will have a voting seat. But the athlete representative on the Board of Governors really doesn't have that much influence now because the Board of Governors has been basically neutered. All the important issues have been sent downstream, and we don't know what the Division One boards are going to look like going forward. So bottom line there is it looks like it's full steam ahead, and all the power players are going to get what they want out of this. And on the backside, as always, the student-athlete voice and the student-athlete's interests are going to be a footnote here because there really won't be a meaningful student-athlete voice. And I don't see any way, absent the passage of the Athletes' Bill of Rights in the Senate, which is in conflict with current NCAA thinking and Power Five thinking and would require enforceable health and safety standards, I don't think you're going to see those standards having any teeth at their voluntary regulatory level at the NCAA or the Power Five or any of the divisional structures or at the institutional level. I just think they're going to not want to go there because it's going to be too expensive. So now let's go back to this draft constitution. And we're up to Article 3, which is titled Finance. Then we have Article 4, Rules Compliance and Accountability. 
Article 5, Amendments to the Constitution, and Article 6, Institutional Control. I think I'm going to be able to knock these out, at least at the descriptive level, and then set the stage for a more detailed analysis on the backside of what all this means. I've talked a little bit about this Article 3, Finance, and I just want to make clear that in the current Constitution, there is no separate constitutional provision titled Finance, and this new Article 3 very short, and I'll just read it to you. It says, resources will be allocated to the three divisions to provide standard membership services, including championships. Division two will receive 4.37% and division three will receive 3.18% of all operating revenue sources as agreed on January 9th, 1996. That language is almost verbatim from the guarantees provisions of the current, the existing Article 4 titled Organization. And they are right at the beginning of that article, so they have a place of primacy. We can forget about all these highfalutin values in the constitutions, both the old one and the new one. This is about money, and it is the March Madness money. When they talk about operating revenue sources, that means one thing. That means the March Madness money. And in this mentality of uh, budget allocations for downstream beneficiaries who can't pay for themselves, is this kind of macro conceptualization of Miles Brand's collegiate model, where you maximize the hell out of the revenue-producing sports. In this case, it's only men's basketball that's relevant because all the football money goes to the Power Five. It doesn't go to the NCAA. But this is a grand welfare system. I've talked about this from an equity standpoint and how unjust it is because the laborers in this single market, the single product that gives life to the NCAA national office and provides these all these downstream beneficiaries with money that they wouldn't have is generated by a labor pool that is overwhelmingly African-American. And it's just an unconscionable concept. And nobody talks about that honestly, but that is baked in to this budget allocation thinking, and it is baked in to this new constitution committee's thinking about its revenue sources and how the money is being spent. While the NCAA is all talking about student voices and athlete representation, there is not a single high-level Division I men's basketball player, particularly an African-American player on this Constitution Committee, and not a single men's basketball player, African-American or white, from big-time basketball has testified at any of the seven congressional hearings that have been conducted since February of 2020. Not one. What does that tell you? It tells you that is the voice that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries don't want you to hear. All right, so the, the second provision of this finance article says that all division two and division three member schools and conferences shall receive services from the national association. So now it's not just the direct financial payouts, not the direct welfare payments, but now it is also all of the services that the national office supplies and the division two and division three members will have and now have a constitutional right to those services. And it says the divisions can, can do more than that if they want to, but they're guaranteed national office services services. And there's some other ministerial stuff. But what's important about that is that you have that brought in as a freestanding, separate constitutional priority. That just reflects, I think, the, the need for the power players to get the buy-in from the Division Two and Division Three stakeholder groups. And it looks like they've achieved that because they're upwards of 75 to 85% in support of this new constitution. Let's see. Then next we have rules, compliance, and accountability. I'm going to hold off on that. I want to talk just about the other ministerial constitutional provision, which doesn't, again, have much purpose here because it, it exists in the old constitution. But they want to make clear under Article 5, this is titled Amendments to the Constitution. That pulls out of the weeds from the old NCAA Constitution's Article 5, this requirement that for the Constitution to be amended, there has to be 
a two-thirds majority vote of all delegates uh, present for approval and that amendments may be sponsored by the Board of Governors or by a two-thirds vote of a divisional leadership body. So I, I don't see anything new there or anything that is particularly controversial. So that leaves the last two provisions, the infractions and enforcement process and then institutional control. So let's start with this new Article 4 titled Rules compliance and accountability. And this, I believe, would uh, replace in large part the existing bylaw 19 that I have talked so much about. I did a thorough analysis of some of those provisions in my discussion about the NCAA's uh, case against NC State. And I'm going to talk about it in connection with the NCAA's case against Oklahoma State that I'll talk a little bit more about here in a second. But first, let me just go through the language and what this does and what I think may be happening behind the scenes a bit, because I think this is going to be an area of contention and some behind the scenes, high stakes, bureaucratic battling between the existing enforcement staff, the full-time staff and some of the leadership of the executive staff at the NCAA National Office and then the rest of the Division I interests. But here's what it says. I'm just going to read the relevant portions. It isn't that long, actually, but it is important. So it says, uh, each member institution consistent with the principle of institutional control shall hold itself accountable to support and comply with the rules and principles approved by the membership. That's nothing new. There's always been a philosophy, institutional responsibility, and control and self-policing and self-reporting. That will continue on in this new constitution. And then we have subsection B, and this is a biggie. Each division shall determine the methods of investigation and adjudication to hold accountable its members whose representatives engage in behaviors that violate the rules and principles approved by the membership. So what does that say? It says that the infractions and enforcement process, both the investigatory tools and then the adjudication process will be controlled at the divisional level. That is currently done with division one in the high stakes cases at the national office level. So you have separate enforcement and infractions apparatuses in each division. Divisions two and three do their own thing and nobody really cares. There are no high stakes cases there because there's no money at stake, no big money at stake. But in division one, the national office bureaucracy handles that. And that is the national office bureaucracy that has been the subject of criticism and ridicule really going back to the Walter Byers years in the 1950s. And then we had the Tarkanian case. I've talked a lot about that. And in the NC State, case. I talked a lot about that. And then in my final episode on that NC State series titled Climate, Culture, and Consequences, I talked about the, the thinking, the, the mindset, the, the climate of the national office infractions and enforcement staff. And it is not a healthy climate and culture. And it goes back to the worst instincts that Walter Byers had and the fear-inspired approach to infractions and enforcement. The NCAA National Office operates like a rogue police state, and they have tried to acquire as much power as they can get, and they have used it to issue arbitrary, capricious, and irrational penalties. And that's exactly what happened in this Oklahoma State case. I'll talk more about that when I finish going through this language. But this takes that very powerful group off the table here. And they have enormous sway in the NCAA national office because some of the most highly compensated national office executives with the longest tenures in the NCAA national office are part of this enforcement and infractions apparatus. And they are not going to go quietly. So let's see. It, it talks about then the more specific accountability measures. And again, this is a constitutional provision. So whatever the divisions do theoretically should comply with these directives. So number one, those accountability measures shall identify the people who engage in investigation and adjudication and define their operating authority. That's important. I think that is, again, a, a hidden message there because the people who work in the existing infractions and enforcement process at the national office operate in anonymity. And I'm going to talk about that, too, because when the NCAA was criticized for its handling of the Oklahoma State case, the Oklahoma State basketball coach and the athletics director, they named names and they identified the people at the NCAA who screwed the kids on this Oklahoma State basketball team, who had nothing to do with the conduct at issue in that investigation. 
situation, but they are serving the punishment. Some of these kids were 14 years old when the alleged misconduct occurred. They're now playing for Oklahoma State and they can't go to the NCAA tournament this year because of something that happened years ago. It's, it's insane. It's insane. But that is, I think, one of the values of this new infractions and enforcement process. And that is that these people should be accountable to the people they regulate. So they talk about accountability and accountability for running a clean program and upholding all these principles, these fraudulent principles, amateurism, the student athlete, the collegiate model. But they don't want any accountability. And when they are identified and they are called out, they don't like it. They don't want that accountability. They just want the accountability to flow down from their dais and into the membership. The membership's accountable to them. They are accountable to no one. And that's part of the problem. Number two, the measure shall be designed to prioritize integrity and fair play, provide fair investigative and adjudicatory procedures, and prescribe appropriate penalties in a timely manner. Again, I think this is speaking the same language that the Power Five is speaking and that the critics of the NCAA's infractions and enforcement program are speaking, and that this bill that was introduced on November 2nd, just six days before the constitutional draft was released, the NCAA Accountability Act, which would basically place the NCAA infractions and enforcement process and its national enforcement staff, its national office staff, under the supervision of the Department of Justice. What does that tell you? It tells you that process is so broken and the level of distrust is so high that the powerful stakeholders, the, the people, the institutions most affected by the national office climate and culture and its enforcement and infractions process want the federal government to basically put the NCAA's infractions and enforcement process into federal receivership under the supervision of the Department of Justice. I mean, it's just shocking that it's come to that, but I think that's what it takes. I believe that bill was not coincidental. The timing of it was not coincidental. And then number three, member institutions shall cooperate fully in all accountability measures established by the applicable division and shall take all necessary measures to ensure the cooperation of their staff, student athlete, and institutional representatives. That brings in this theory of cooperation, which exists now. It, it exists in a much harsher form after the Commission on College Basketball's recommendations made that kind of an independent process crime and the failure to cooperate by an individual subject of an NCAA investigation would result in a finding that the allegations relating to that person are, are deemed true. And that's a due process problem. Number four, institutions may also agree to compliance with enforcement and adjudication of rules at the conference level. So this gives the conferences some role in that process. Then number five and number six are important. Number five, divisions and, as appropriate, conference regulations must ensure to the greatest extent possible that penalties imposed for infractions do not punish programs or student-athletes innocent of the infractions. So that is a direct shot over the bow of the NCAA's absurd handling of this Oklahoma State case. And these kids who have been thrown under the bus, 14 of the 17 members of the current Oklahoma State roster are African-American, and it's those very athletes who provide value in the NCAA March Madness Tournament that fund the salaries of these very people who are throwing them under the bus. It is just unconscionable. This is an attempt, I think, to cut that corrupt process and that corrupt feature of the NCAA national office off at the knees. And if that occurs, then great. I'm all for this, this provision. But this number five just flies directly in the face of what the NCAA did in this Oklahoma State case. And number six, investigation of alleged infractions and if appropriate, sanctions or penalties by a division or conference should be consistent and timely. Decisions with respect to minor infractions should be prompt and proportionate. So now we're bringing in efficiency and proportionality. And when I get to this Oklahoma State case, just as in the NC State case, the delays were attributable mostly to the NCAA itself slowing the process down so that it could try to gain access to dirt in these criminal cases, dirt that it was denied access to. And I talked about that again in this NC State case. And the NCAA came in and filed a motion to intervene in the suit for the sole purposes of getting information that trial judge had put under seal because it was so inflammatory, prejudicial, irrelevant, and just made in bad faith. It was 
means rumor, speculation, innuendo. That's what the NCAA wants to deal in. They tried to get that. They didn't get it. Then they paused the proceedings in these basketball-related cases. Carol Cartwright did that. She was managing all these basketball-related cases, and she is on the Knight Commission, and she was the, uh, the chair of the Knight Commission at the time. And she's also acting as the head of the Committee on Infractions and the representative for these basketball-related cases. But she puts the brakes on and says, look, we need to step back and look at the chessboard. And I think the reason she did that was because she thought that they were going to get access to all that dirt. And then they were going to be able to fold in more allegations against the the people who were subject to that criminal case. So these delays were not delays because the institution was dragging its feet. All of the evidence, and by the admission of the Committee on Infractions panel that heard this Oklahoma State case, Oklahoma State cooperated in every way possible and did everything within its power to reach a swift and just outcome. This language in this provision six of article five on enforcement and infractions speaks in terms of proportionality. And that is so important here because when you look at the amount of money that was at stake in that Oklahoma State case. And it really boiled down to a $300 payment to an athlete who immediately recognized that there could be a problem with it, self-reported, and the university took swift remedial action. $300. And that payment didn't come from some bad actor agent. It came from an Oklahoma State assistant coach who had this plan with some outside influences before he even came to Oklahoma State. So he hatched this harebrained scheme where he was going to get paid money to steer star athletes to certain agents. And he gave $300 to this kid. And they have a a confidential fiduciary relationship. And the players respect and trust their coaches. And this assistant coach abused that trust. There's no question about that. The facts are, are just shocking. I'll get into that when I talk about the case more specifically. But in terms of proportionality, the amount of money that was spent to prosecute this case is grossly out of proportion to the $300 that was at issue and was the only real transaction between this idiot assistant coach and an athlete. And that athlete didn't play a single game for Oklahoma State. They immediately declared him ineligible, pulled him out. His career was over. He tanked in the NBA draft. And it was just a train wreck for him. And this kid tried to do the right thing. By NCAA logic, he tried to do the right thing. But in this absurd process in which all the actors, the NCAA enforcement staff and then the Committee on Infractions, which are NCAA insiders, this case was not referred to the Independent Accountability Resolution Panel. This all stayed in-house in the old infractions and enforcement process. But these people approached their task like federal prosecutors, FBI sting agents, and then federal judges. And they completely lose sight of the institutional values that they claim to represent. This is a private, voluntary nonprofit association of universities and colleges for crying out loud. These people are acting like a rogue police state. And once they get inside that bubble, the logic that exists in that bubble makes sense to them. It really makes sense. And that's part of the problem with the people who are making those decisions. And I did an episode in that NC State case on the world according to Carol Cartwright and had Perrin and many university presidents. And this ties into the institutional control issue as well. The mindset of the people that have created this system is so far removed from the realities of the athletes that they regulate and the circumstances of these athletes and the true value of these athletes to the institutions and the NCAA that it is just, it shocks the conscience when you look at the result in these cases. And this Oklahoma State case is is just a case study in how detached and removed these people are from the lives of these kids who pay the bills. pay the bills for the NCAA national office. And in that opinion, the opinion of the Committee on Infractions, they list all of the people who attended the actual hearing. After all the briefings been done, they have this hearing, which I guess is the equivalent of the trial, such as it is, because it is a kangaroo court. But they listed all these people. And when you look at who just attended that single hearing on the NCAA side, you're talking about millions of dollars 
of salary. And they talk about the Committee on Infractions people. Well, they're volunteers, and that's true. The actual hearing panel is volunteers, and then the appeals panelists are, are volunteers. We, we think, we take that at face value, but there hasn't been a forensic accounting of that office or the infractions and enforcement process. But the NCAA staff, the executive staff members responsible for oversight of the national office staff and enforcement and infractions, they're getting paid a ton of money. And the enforcement staff is making a bunch of money. So those people are not volunteers. And they are the ones who are setting the policy. They are the ones whose decision-making is the predicate for any action by the Committee on Infractions. These NCAA National Office people, these paid employees, are finding the facts. They're seeking out the dirt. They're finding every way that they possibly can to screw the schools and the athletes because that justifies their existence, their bureaucratic existence. That's what this is all about. And these basketball-related cases have given the NCAA an opportunity to, to showboat and to go out into the public arena and to convince the public that the NCAA is in this righteous crusade to preserve the sacred principle of amateurism, the collegiate model, and the student-athlete. Again, this Oklahoma State case was issued in June of 2020. So this is before the Austin case. This is a year before the Austin case and before the wheels started to fall off the NCAA's campaign in the Senate and then their appeal in the Austin case. So they're all full of themselves. But on the backside of that, this appeals committee didn't say, look, circumstances have changed and we're just going to we're going to jump out of this role that we're serving. And within this parallel funhouse universe of, you know, the rogue state and this prosecutorial approach that we have, we're going to step outside of that because we're a values-based organization. The, the things that we're trying to do here in this infractions and enforcement process don't occur in a vacuum. They occur within the value system of the institutions and within principles of fairness and justice and all the things that higher education is supposed to represent. We're stepping outside of that now and we're saying, look, circumstances have changed. And these principles have been called into question. And the punishment that was meted out was arbitrary, capricious, and irrational because it's punishing kids who had nothing to do with the underlying alleged misconduct. And that is explicitly acknowledged in this new constitution. But that appeals committee didn't do that. They stayed in character and they made a mockery of the values that they claimed to hold. And then the last section of this Article 4, I think I called it Article 5 earlier, Article 4, Rules, Compliance, and Accountability, says each division shall annually report to the NCAA Board of Governors all major infractions as defined by each division during the preceding year, the status of investigations, and penalties imposed. So the way this is structured, the divisions set up the enforcement mechanism and the penalty structure and the people who are going to do the investigations, the people who are going to hear the cases and have the criteria for the resolution of, of those cases and, and all that stuff. And then they report to the NCAA Board of Governors annually on their major cases. And it's a way to kind of track what's going on. The other philosophy here is consistency. One of the criticisms of the NCAA process is that the, the quote unquote precedent, the body of law that has developed over the decades in this process is internally inconsistent. And it is driven by uh, conflicts of interest and self-interest because all the people making these decisions are NCAA insiders. So they're really, the precedent isn't reliable. And that's an important point. If you're going to try to mimic the federal criminal process, you, you need to have a coherent system of case law. You need to have the coherent application of principles of precedent and stare decisis and, and all of the things that are safeguards in our criminal justice system and our legal system uh, writ large. That doesn't exist in the NCAA case law. It is all over the map and they can pick and choose and do really do whatever the hell they want to because they can find a precedent to support whatever they want to do. And that was crystal clear, I think, in some of the issues that came up. And in fact, some of the charging decisions that the enforcement staff made in this Oklahoma State case were so difficult to understand that the Committee on Infractions, the hearing panel, had to refer some of these issues to a separate interpretive committee because they couldn't make heads or tails of the bylaw that they were trying to apply. And I would say at that point, you just stop. You stop. You put on the brakes and you say, well, wait a minute, what the hell are we doing here? We can't make heads or tails of this uh, bylaw that we're supposed to use to punish these actors that are subject to our regulation. But we don't know what it is. We don't know what the hell it means. Then you stop and you say, the problem here isn't with the conduct we're trying to address. It's with the rules. 
We have a rules problem here. We have a values problem here. We have a problem that this whole process is completely disconnected from the realities of the business model in the 21st century. And we're putting the brakes on this. We're just saying we're not going any further until the NCAA gets its shit together and writes some rules that make some sense. And they refuse to do that. And they benefit from the confusion that those rules create because they are the sole arbiter of what the facts are what the rules are, how the rules are interpreted, how the rules are applied, and what the penalties are. It's one-stop shopping. You, know, you have everything running through the NCAA national office, and it is corrupt from top to bottom. And this new constitution, and I think this bill, this NCAA Accountability Act, are really the pressure points now for the national office and the infractions and enforcement staff. But I think behind the scenes, there's a battle going on here, and I don't think that's played, fully played out yet. And when I get to the kind of the consequences, the impact episodes, I'm going to talk a little bit more about this infractions and enforcement process, because what this means is that the division one, the power five, I think, are going to have to come up with an enforcement and infractions process, a new one that puts them to the task of addressing all these criticisms that they have had. And was it going to What's it going to look like? To what extent is it going to reflect the existing structure? And what are the safeguards? What are the, the safeguards that benefit the athletes, not the institutions? What are the safeguards that protect the athletes who provide the value in the product and fund the entire NCAA national office? So it'll be interesting to see. Again, the devil is going to be in the details here. But now the burden has shifted to the divisional decision makers. And the Division One decision makers are going to have a tough job here, I think because they're going to have to sit down and come up with some thoughtful, practical, fair, just, and streamlined procedures for this new process. And again, we'll, we'll see what happens, but that ties into what this transformation committee is thinking about and how it sees its task once this constitution is adopted. Because remember, we have this delay now. Once the constitution is ratified in January, and I think that's going to happen, the divisions have until August to come up with legislation that conforms to the new constitution. And that's going to be a, a crazy time, I think, in Division One, that January to August 2022 timeframe. So we'll put on our seatbelts for that one. So now I want to go to this very last provision under the new constitution, Article 6, Institutional Control. And that corresponds directly to the old constitution, Article 6, which is also titled Institutional Control, but it's very short. And I'll just, I'll just go through this. It says, sub A, there are three paragraphs. A, the control and responsibility for the conduct of intercollegiate athletics shall be exercised by the institution itself and the division and conference of which it is a member. Right. That's important because that doesn't speak directly in terms of presidential leadership. Then the second sentence of that, a member institution's president or chancellor has ultimate responsibility and final authority for the conduct of the intercollegiate athletics program and the actions of any board in control of that program. So while that sounds like the presidents are still in the captain's chair, it really puts them subordinate to the divisions and the institutions and the conferences. And then the university president, I guess, has some inherent residual power and responsibility for the what the final decision is. But I think that this is a subtle but important movement away from the way that the presidential authority and control model was conceptualized by the Knight Commission in the late 1980s and then offered up in 1991 through the presidential control movement. And remember, the purpose of that movement was to pull back on the commercialization and professionalization in college sports. And it was really a salvo launched against the very thing that college sports has become. And I've talked a lot about how the presidents have really been the fox in the hen house while they've been in charge of this thing. But it looks to me from that statement, I think that's a hidden suggestion that the presidents are going to have less of a frontline role. But you also have now with this reduction in the Board of Governors, and again, we don't know what the Division One Board of Directors is going to look like going forward, but in the current construction of those two bodies, they are purposefully dominated by university presidents. So 20 of the 24 Division One Board of Directors are university presidents or chancellors. And I think eight or maybe more of the 21 member Board of Governors are university presidents and chancellors. And there, there are 12 members in the current board structure that 
serve on both boards and they're university presidents. They're almost all university presidents. And that has been a miserable failure. And so reducing the size of the board of governors doesn't really speak to what the division one board of directors looks like. But it, I think that the reduction in the board of governors from 21 to nine and the re requirement that there be at least one university president is a clear step away from the whole concept of presidential control. And the presidents, I don't know what their, what their real thinking is here. I think there's some uh, academic conceit in uh, wanting to have symbolic control, but not have any accountability or ultimate responsibility when things go wrong. And some of the influences of presidential thinking in the, the structure of the NCAA, and in particular, its value system and how that's enforced, has gotten the NCAA into all kinds of trouble. And remember, Mark Emmert is a former university president, as was Miles Brand before him. And in the last, what has that been now, almost 20 years since the university presidents took over control of the NCAA president's position. Things have gone downhill when you're looking at commercialization and professionalization. And this presidential model not only has done little to stem the commercialization and professionalization of big-time college sports, it has accelerated, I think, in large part because the Power Five university presidents and chancellors see big-time college sports as a as crystal meth of branding and marketing and exposure. And they just can't get enough of it. And they're addicted to it. And they are not voluntarily going to pull back. So in this iteration of presidential control, they're not even talking about at the values level why presidential control was important, why it's important to any extent now. And their original reason was that they were going to get this beast under control. <laughs> we're not even having that conversation now. That conversation has shifted not from what is best for higher education, but what is best for college sports and what is best for college sports in the world according to the NCAA National Office and the Power Five decision makers is more money, more more exposure, better branding opportunities, and revenue streams that they can exploit to just keep bringing in the big money and creating exposure opportunities that have the university on public display in a very favorable format almost 24-7. And that conversation really brings me full circle to the second episode of this podcast. And it was why our big-time universities in this game. You know, th there's been historic criticism in academic circles about the irreconcilable tension between big-time college sports and the academic mission of higher education and the individual institutions. And that was really the centerpiece of some of these reform movements, including the Knight Commission in the early 1990s. Again, that, that language is like Latin now. It's gone. Nobody's talking that language because the relationship between the universities and the big-time college sports products, football and men's basketball, is now so inextricably linked at the branding level, at the marketing level, at the exposure level, that they can't imagine life without those products or without uh, a version of those products that gives them access to more exposure, more money. And I think when you bring this back around to the athlete's rights lens, when you're looking at it through the interests of the athletes whose labor provide the value in this $20 billion a year marketplace, the real question now is, will their interests be any better served really under the direction of the Power Five with the NCAA on the sidelines here? Or is it going to be business as usual? And I think when you look honestly at how the Power Five have managed their quest for the Iron Throne in conjunction with the NCAA through the congressional campaign in the Senate that formulated at the policy level in late 2019 and carried into that first hearing in commerce in February of 2020 and then through the hearings of 2021. And then the strategy in the Austin case, they were lockstep. They were joined at the hip in that Austin case because they were trying to get antitrust immunity. And then their uh, agreement on preemption to try to get the federalization of the nil market to get the state legislatures off the table the executive orders off the table, the university policies off the table. They want complete authority for those things. So I don't see the Power Five as being this uh, liberator for revenue-producing athletes. They tried to portray themselves that way in the autonomy movement in 2014. But what they got from that was 
really more beneficial to their institutional interests because they created essentially an insurmountable advantage through those additional benefits in the talent acquisition market. And those benefits weren't anything new. They weren't anything great. And some of them were the product of antitrust litigation, like the full cost of attendance scholarship. So they didn't get a whole lot, even though coaches were going out and saying, oh, wow, this is a dramatic change. Boy, it's a whole different game for these people. And look at what they get. And that, in my judgment, is a way of delegitimizing these athletes because it speaks in terms of what they didn't have before and instead of what they're actually worth. And we need to start having the conversation about what they're actually worth. And will that happen under Power 5 control as opposed to NCAA control? I don't think so. I think all of the business incentives that operated at the NCAA national office exist with the Power 5. You know, in the summer of 2014, when the Power 5 was really pressing hard for this autonomy legislation and classification, and Mark Emmert went to the Senate to try to make the case for the autonomy classification, although he didn't acknowledge that he was carrying the bags of the Power Five at that time. There was some interesting testimony from Taylor Branch, who was a civil rights historian that I've talked a lot about. And he wrote that important article in 2011 in The Atlantic, The Shame of College Sports. And then he also was one of the co-authors of a friend of the court brief in the United States Supreme Court in the Austin case, where he really made the case with these other historians that amateurism was a, was a sham and it never really existed. And even in the early 20th century, when people look back now and think that that was a pristine amateur ideal in college sports, it, it, he and his colleagues said, no, <laughs> it was the opposite of that. And even then, the same incentives existed and people who wanted the most professionalized, commercialized product that the market could offer. But towards the end of that hearing, Taylor Branch just came out and said, look, if we're looking to the Power Five here to be the agents of change, we've got a big problem here. And he said, they can offer these tips. He analogized these extra benefits that athletes would get through autonomy legislation to the kind of tip that a waiter might get. And that was a beautiful analogy in my judgment, because that's really what it amounts to. And he said, yeah, they can get these tips, but this doesn't do anything to change the fundamental relationship between the laborers and the beneficiaries of that labor, whether it's the NCAA in the driver's seat or the Power Five in the driver's seat. And he said, nothing's going to change. It's the same theme that I have harped on in this podcast nothing's going to change as long as we have the same people with the same incentives making the decisions. And that's just the long and short of the dynamic that exists right now in college sports. And I don't see that changing through this new constitution. And we still have the overall compensation limit in place. It's just been devolved down to the divisions and then the conferences in a way that appears to mitigate some of the antitrust concerns, but I'm not sure that's the case. When you look at how these decisions are going to be made, I think we're looking at an oligarchy instead of a monopoly, but I think there are still antitrust implications. And I think that's where I'm, I'm going to go in the next episode. I talked about that at the beginning of the last episode when I was road mapping. And I think on the backside of this restructuring, I think that we need to think about the antitrust implications here because that's going to have a, an enormous influence on what the Division One products look like. And they're not out of the woods taking the NCAA out of control for this overarching compensation limit or national control over the name, image, and likeness compensation limits. There are still legitimate antitrust issues that will follow the Power Five. And I, I think that they're going to have to manage that in a way that minimizes the, the risk of antitrust liability. And again, it creates this convergence of interest between the NCAA and the Power Five to still get antitrust immunity. And the only way they can get that now is through Congress, because the U.S. Supreme Court said, no, you can't have it from a federal court. So we'll pick up there. And we have pretty much completed our descriptive section of this new constitution, a little bit of analysis. But we're going to jump right into some of the big picture issues that will present themselves on the backside of the ratification of this constitution. So I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. Take care.